Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of Circuit 42. I am your host, Ian, and I am here with comic book superstar and badass among the stars, Christopher Allen. How's it going? Doing good, man. It's been a while. It's been eh, not too long, just six years. Over half <laughs> of holy crap. It goes by very quickly. It goes by very quickly. I was going to say, if, we're, if, anyone is, if anyone is working as much as you are, it's going by very quickly. Very quickly. So... Let's just talk about that, man. Because when I when I met you, you were getting ready to do the Spider-Man Reptilian Rage with Ralph Macchio, and now you're just on top of the world, man. You're doing uh, you're the ongoing artist on Black Panther. You've worked on Moon Knight. You've worked on X Force, uh, Miles Morales, Spider-Man. It's like, dude, this has been a dream come true. I got to tell you, I, when I talk to the talent coordinator Ricky Purden at Marvel, I, I keep telling him that that uh, every day that goes by, I'm more and more convinced that this is a simulation. And I might, they might just be lulling me to stay in the matrix. I don't know. It's amazing though. It's been, it's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of work, but like, I, I've never been happier in my life. So what you're saying, it's basically like the M. Night Shyamalan episode of Rick and Morty. I, I, yes. All I'm saying is, I hope that David Cross doesn't come out and tell me that I'm stuck in a simulation, in a simulation. <laughs> well, there you go. Plot twist. All right. So with that, so with that plot twist, let's talk, man. Let's you know what? Let's start off at the top. Okay. With Black Panther, with the new number one issue by Eve Ewing, you're going to be coming on as the ongoing artist. How did that? That's freaking cool. It's amazing. It, it's a, it's incredibly exciting. The the talent team at Marvel they 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 made sure to take each of the Stormbreakers and assign them a project that they thought that after working with them for about a year would fit what they were doing the best and the cool thing about black panther is this version is that i get to do a lot of world building because one of the things that that if if you've read any of my stuff you should know is i do not skimp on the backgrounds and i love world building and i love easter eggs and i love all of that stuff that's where i have the most fun so i get to build a world in wakanda i get to build a place from the ground up and it's been super fun and with the uh with seriously with the timing of the movie the time of Black Panther Wakanda forever, like this could not be a better time to be opening up on a book like that. Yeah, yeah, and but the main event here is Eve because this is the first uh, time that black female writer has written Black Panther ever. I didn't know that. So this is a huge deal for representation. But Eve Ewing brings incredible pedigree to the table. She's one of Marvel's most prolific writers right now. She writes a whole bunch of stuff for them, and I, she did not skimp on like all of the things that make me happy when I get a script. So I'm very happy every time. Every time I get some pages in the inbox, like like a lot of like a lot of uh, later readers, I started off with uh, Christopher Priest, um, Black Panther, and mm-hmm. that's what made me a fan. And then especially, uh, especially just the artwork throughout that whole series. And then when I Matt Texiera, man, no, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's a, but he's a treasure. Yeah, I remember the first time that he drew the Dora Milaje, and they were just like these, like they just were like in these tight little tube skirts, sunglasses. T'Challa was getting out of a limo. That was amazing. Yeah, it was like the most pimp comic or whatever. Like just everything here. I just feel like this how Christopher Priest just lives his day to day life, and then he's like, "I'm going to take this and just make it about a superhero." <laughs> I mean, if you're pictures of him from back in the '70s, I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds that tracks." 
that's like that's like when you see a picture of uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in this from the seventies. Yep, and he, he looks like Apollo Creed. The um, let's let's touch on this. You mentioned Stormbreakers, and Mar- Stormbreakers is something that Marvel's been doing for not a while now, and kind of their whole like their whole push on it, the whole promo is the next generation of elite artists. And then they bring, they basically bring in like the class of 2023, class of 2022. And um, they, like you said, they basically find books that work with them and put them on those projects. Talk about that a little bit. How did that occur that you got brought in through the Marvel Stormbreakers? So I had been doing freelance gigs for Marvel for a minute. One of the things that they always talked about when it came to my stuff was how well I told a story. And this is one of the things that if you're an aspiring artist and you want to draw comics, this is what they look for. When I would turn in pages to them, they would know exactly what was going on on the page without any words. And they could read the whole story without words. So, so, and a lot of people were given words. People were talking about me behind the scenes. And it was every time I would work on a project, somebody would say, people are passing your pages around. They love what you do. We're looking for stuff for you. You know, as soon as we have something, we'll, we'll call you. And then Ricky Purden, who I had worked with originally, I'd met originally at San Diego Comic-Con in like 2016. He called me and he said, he said, I have something to offer you. And I want you to take a moment to think about it. But here it is. Read through it and see if this is something that you want to, you want to try out. <laughs> Why would I say no to this? Then you're like, no. It's like, crap. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a, I, I, I have a pedicure that day. No. And you became British. Yeah. I said, yes. <laughs> I said, now, please. When you and I had first met, you had just done um, the Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, the prelude. Mm-hmm. And you were getting ready to do the Ant- Ant-Man the Wasp. Uh, it was yeah. that, and during that time, you had talked to me about a uh, Spider-Man one-off that you were doing. The Reptilian Rage. The reason I was excited about it, though, was that that would be the first comic that I did that would actually take place in the 616 that the other prelude comics I were doing, they were, they were movie tie-ins. But this is the first comic that takes place in the 616 and is part of canon. So, uh, yeah, I was I was drooling over myself about that one. That was awesome. Well, I remember when you were talking to me about it, and the thing that I, the thing, because you, I remember you had the prints that you, the, the prints for the book there at the time. And mm-hmm. my, my big takeaway was just how much, when, because I've been doing comic conventions since I was in high school, and I've been in press work since, about 2011 and you yeah. can always tell when someone is basically doing the script of here's the things i'm excited about or when someone's actually excited about it and the biggest takeaway i got from you was that it was clear that this was not a like a scripted editorial piece about why you're excited this was you were really excited that's what got me interested in finding out more about you ralph macchio was my spider-man editor when i was growing up ron friends is my spider-man artist and Ralph Macchio is my Spider-Man editor. I mean, friends, and I mean, I know that I'm in the minority here, but like for me, Ron Friends is the best Spider-Man artist. He's he's he's, he's better than McFarlane. He's better than uh, he's better than all the people who've gone before him. He comes from a place where he draws bruisers like Thor, but when you give him a character like Spider-Man, he adds such humanity to him. So to get to work with that editor, that was. You can see I'm, I'm still gushing now. <laughs> it's been six years. And then you had um, Todd Dock, who's just amazingly underrated. Do you see that cover, man? I, I, I was like, I, was, Dude, I love I saw, Young Justice. I grew up on Young Justice by him and Peter David. When I saw that cover, I was like, I need to step my game up because they had sent me a high res version of it. When I set up tables, I could yeah. put it as my signage. So, um, so I, I had it on my wall for a long time until until they we painted the room and then it, it had to come down and. 
it was a uh, command up there. So, uh, sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll have to. Re- I have it on the. I have it on the hard drive. I have just been too lazy to print it, or too busy, or too lazy and busy. It seemed like twenty twenty one was your year. Yeah, you know what? Twenty the the twenty twenties because because Ricky had started talking to me in twenty twenty, and he's like, I just want you to get ready for this because it's going to be a lot. Like they're they're gonna they're gonna need you to do uh uh. You're going to need to do regular work because we want you on the stands all the time because it's not just that you get to like draw comics, but like you're the artist that Marvel is promoting. Like people will know who you are because you're going to be in all of our books. Like you're going to do covers for us and we'll have your name on the cover. Like not as a signature, but as a like, this was done by this guy. So it's always going to be like you're going to you're one of our you're one of the artists that is going to be in our forefront. And I mean, I'm standing next to like some incredible artists who it, I, I will say make me, <laughs> I mean, it's very humbling to be in this group of artists, but, but, but yeah, 2020, Ricky was starting to talk to me about it. 2021, I mean, like the minute that I turned in my last project outside of that, it, we hit the ground running. We hit the ground running. It, they, they got, they put me on Miles Morales. Yep. I get to work with Sal Ahmed. That was that was incredible. He he was doing he was he was doing that thing where they had put the character through his paces and now they wanted to put him someplace very different so that he would interact in a different way so that when it was time to start the next story arc, they could decompress him a little bit. You know, movie fans are starting to get going to start understanding more once we follow up on Spider Man No Way Home because yeah. you could tell that Spider Man No Way Home is setting up for that. Also, it's like remember one more day. Let's make it. Like good. The story that led up to that is so weird. It's like it's like uh, it's it's magic and sorcery and like MacGuffins and all that stuff. And at the end of it, you get a simpler version of the character that you can that you can build off of, whilst while not while not making the character monotonous. And that's it's it's a very delicate delicate juggling act that the the editorial and the writers and the artists have to play constantly. To keep these characters fresh. Well, it's that it's the idea that I've always I, I don't know how you feel on this as an artist, but you're also a comic, just a fan in general. There's no really no bad concept, I think. I think there's just bad execution. But the thing to remember about the execution, oftentimes you're not talking about a linear process. Yeah. Oftentimes you're talking about a process that has several different things that are that are in motion at the same time. And so whether you're a producer or whether you're editorial, your job is is to keep your eye on the big picture, but at the same time to take all of these disparate pieces that are moving in tandem and keep them on the same path, moving in the same direction. And that yeah. I mean, I don't want that job. No, <laughs> I don't want yes, yeah. Every I mean, people like you said, people don't realize each book is not its own individual machine. Each book is a machine in itself, but it's also an individual tool. And I think when, for example, like with Ant-Man Quantumania, like a lot of people didn't get it. Like they were like, oh, I should be able to enjoy this by itself. I'm like, no, that's not how comic books work. Like, yes, there are elements you can enjoy by yourself, but you have to have seen these scenes. That's why you're watching the 20th something movie in a franchise. You have to have seen those other things. And yeah. I get where people are coming from and there are issues with that. But at the same time, I'm like, no, I want this. This is why I watch all these things so I can get that big continuity moment. The other thing to remember about, especially especially comic books, and by extension, like their movie counterparts, is that the, the beauty of comics 
is is uh is that they're very malleable so like let's take the mandarin in uh in iron man in iron man 3 yeah uh iron man 3 so the mandarin iron man 3 everyone not a lot of people were fans of it i loved that twist but a lot of people were not fans of that twist and but comic books and the medium is so malleable that they're just like this is actually the real mandarin and so like Let's let's use Modoc as an example. There are some people who were not very happy with that version of Modoc. I will say that the first time I saw Modoc as a child, it was one of the most terrifying designs I'd ever seen. This weird misshapen head trapped in a cybernetic body, floating around with its like white dead eyes and all the scars on its face. And yeah. um, and um, and the movie version is very different than that. But it's not necessarily the last time you're going to see Modoc. So. Like these things are very changeable and like, and this is what I'm talking about. Like you have all these pieces that are moving in tandem and editorial has to like, and editorial or production have to track what's going on and see like what they can change, what they can't change, what they need to change, et cetera, et cetera. And it is a constantly moving process. And the larger it gets, like the MCU, the more unwieldy it gets. And I mean, like, you know, all praise to the people who, who take a job like that and and create something that's a, that's comprehensible and fun frankly i will say my head canon for um um for modoc will always be bruce campbell and megas xlr oh <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that is insane you got you got to love a cartoon that doesn't even pretend that they're that they're borrowing from something else they're like so there's modoc as bruce, bruce campbell and he's doing the voice too <laughs> that's cool that's cool was that the one with the giant monster truck? Was it a monster truck robot? The one that was driven by the voice actor for Spike from Cubby Bebop. <laughs> yeah, that was the nerdy episode of that. That was a hard show to keep track of. I, I, I lost track of it. There's a couple of shows where I liked on Adult Swim that, that, I, that I always tried to keep track of and just lost track of. But you could always find Family Guy until uh, until uh, they stopped carrying it. Yeah. But yeah, this show is just nowhere on streaming. And I'm like, Dude, the fact that there is a American cartoon with Steve Bloom and Wendy Lee and and you and you can't find it on streaming, that's sad to me. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, you know, since we're talking about the Marvel universe, uh, there was this thing that my friends and I used to do back in the nineties uh, because that's when I was at like peak nerddom, um, where we would sit around and 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 we would talk about we would do the thing that like everybody does now online. And it's so weird to see it, like to see other people doing it. We had a word for it. And I want to ask you if you have ever heard this word before, or if it's just like unique to our work, our nerd group, where you would sit around and you would talk about how you would do something differently. And like, you would tell your friend group, your version of the story that you would do. And we called it prequeling for obvious reasons. Yeah. Does anybody see prequeling? Um, yeah, and in fact, I've actually come. I actually came with like I also did the same thing with some of the, some of the lesser square on movies. <laughs> you want to hear? We one? would well, all that we would just order pizza. We would get some beers, and we would just stay up all night doing the best. The um, I, I've got I've got to because uh, was it Spider Man three? Mm-hmm. Messy, messy movie. The fact that they didn't even pull it from Venom, they're like, nah, you you stay there, Topher. Which sucks, because Topher is actually re- could be really creepy, but they just didn't use him well. 
it was clear that like that Raimi, what Raimi told a very cohesive and interesting story. I liked Spider Man three, but it was clear that like his heart was not in telling the Venom story. Like he wanted to tell the Sandman, the st- the Sandman story from beginning to end was gorgeous. And I'm so glad they pulled from that for the um, for the movie. And I'm I'm glad because I I love the MCU, but the MCU can be snarky sometimes. I'm glad they didn't snark on Sandman because like yeah, the um. But here's my here's my idea that I've always had. Like since I first saw the movie, don't have Venom in any of the movie at all. Have Eddie in the movie. Deal with his story with the with the uh, the serial killer. I can't remember the name of the character from the comics, but the one that they who the one that he was tracking down, the one that's like, oh no, I found him, I found him, and have that whole storyline happening in the background. Like don't like have like newspaper stories about this killer that's out and about. You hear things in the background, but you don't see them, and have the story focusing on Sandman and Green Goblin. And so you start hearing these background stories, and they introduce this new reporter named Eddie Brock, and he comes into the paper, and you see him going back and forth. You hear like these shouting matches in the background between him and Jay Jonah. Yeah. And then continue to build that up. And then you find out in the background, you was wait, so he wasn't the guy at all. You just believed the source. And you gave us the story, and uh, then then come about have the remember the church scene, which probably uh-huh. movie, have that happen, have that happen where it does in the movie. Still don't show Eddie. All of a sudden, Eddie's gone. We don't know where he is. Eddie has disappeared. People are looking for him. The cops are looking for the newspaper. Jay Jonah is like, we had this guy who sold us this fake story. Now he's gone. Where is he? And then at the very end of the movie. Come back, cut to the come to the church, show Eddie at the church, and then you start hearing the sounds of the symbiote. You start hearing the ringing of the bells as he's in the church, as he's talking, basically talking to God, trying not to kill himself. And then you hear, uh-huh. and then you hear the brand, we have the camera come up and do a Sam Raimi move into the tower. Yeah, as we're at the midway point in the movie, you start, you see the symbiote come off of Peter, go into the church. And then you get the shot of the dark, and it's just the the white face of Venom in the darkness as he comes up, and then just cut to the end, cut to credits. Oh yeah. Now, let me ask you a question: Is there a Spider-Man Four without Raimi? The only Spider-Man Four is Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah, yeah. Because because I will I will say this: When you listen, Raimi is one of the few directors who directed comic book movies before this current wave we're in who really really loved the character and who got a true affection for the character but it was a character in its purest form so he famously dislikes venom and i think that i mean if we're being conspiratorial i mean i understand that he's that he's he's his eddie brock is a mirror image of peter parker and and by extension of the actor, but that's not Eddie Brock from the comic. Eddie Brock from the comics is like a is a big boy. Yeah. So so I, I, I just think that I like the idea of 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 taking more time with the character of Venom and teasing it and and doing what you're you're saying. Let Spider-Man 3 play out without Venom until the end and then tease Spider-Man 4 with Venom as the main villain. But watch Eddie Brock through that movie. I realize Eddie's been there the whole time. And there's a but, reason to find him. 
but you know that product that, that that the producers of that movie were like oh Avi Arad would never have done that it's, yeah it's yeah so, Avi Arad so, kind so, of so like Venom needs to be in this movie because he's the most popular Spider-Man villain. It's like doing a Batman movie without the Joker, which is which is a fine analogy for anyone who doesn't read Spider-Man. <laughs> it's, it's a great analogy for somebody who doesn't read Spider-Man. This is fine. But that is prequeling. Yeah. I always love in uh was it Flashpoint, the whole idea it's like, oh yeah, no superheroes exist, but we know Batman. I'm like, so is this just you is this just readers in real life? Is this people who don't read the comics? Is that a flash? Do you remember that, epi- that 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 issue of the Ultimates where they did the Defenders, but like none of them had powers, and they just had costumes? And it was just like the lame little like perv team <laughs> of Hank Pym. That was my favorite issue. I mean, the Ultimates. That was, I mean, that was a life changing. I mean, that, I mean that that book changed comics. I mean, and and so powerful. Was Brian Hitch's run on that on Brian Hitch and Mark Millar's run on that? That they let Brian Hitch take a year to draw an issue. Yep, that was I'll amazing. I've got my hardcovers right over there. Worth it. And and look, I was there day one when they said like I forget what, what even issue it was when they're like issue six or issue seven is out and it had been a year. I was like, I want one. Yeah. Um, funny enough, it was back before. Now I for, I forgot. I know you. I know you live in San Antonio, but are you from San Antonio? No, I'm from Orlando. Okay, because Dragons Lair Comics used to be Excalibur Comics. It used to be so. Joe Dunn, who is who's the owner of Antarctic Press, used to own Excalibur. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, and and that um, makes a lot of sense now. Yeah, and he still. It's almost like I mean he owns he owns part of it, but it's almost like an ownership emeritus. But like he he owns part of it, but like he don't run it. Yeah. But it, so 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 he's still a part of it, which is good. If I can, I would like to take a moment to talk about Antarctic Press and about Joe Dunn because no, I was going to ask about that because we are going to talk about out of body experience. But I know before out of body experience, you had worked with them before on. Um, Lady Britannia, agent of the crown. There are people in comics who will never get their flowers but deserve to. And Joe Dunn and his brother Ben, and by extension, all the people they brought along with him, Joey Welchins, Lee Duhigg, Fred Perry, all of them, these people deserve way more credit and exposure than, than, than they get. Fred Perry just published his 300th issue of Gold Digger, but I want to zero in on Joe Dunn because behind every great group of artists, there's a guy who loves either art or comics or friendship or whatever. And Joe Dunn is all of those people. Joe Dunn, when I moved here and I, and, and uh, I moved here to stay with my brother on Randolph Air Force Base and then he got he got PCS to uh, Portugal, so yeah. I had no one here, and I, I was not interested in going back to Florida. And I found Joe Dunn, and Joe Dunn was like, "You know what? I have a house you can stay in, where a couple of other artists stay. This is just the house that artists stay in, and you can stay there for as long as you like. And oh, wow. uh, all you have to do is just draw books for us." And and 
Joe Dunn has always been like that. And he's like that to this day. And it's not just, and the reason I want to, I want to shout him out is because Joe Dunn, it's not just that Joe Dunn cares about like Antarctic press and about, you know, like seeing these artists, you know, live their vision, but he genuinely cares about anybody who walks through his door in the most beautiful way possible. So, so I want to make sure that Joe, that, that, that like, if nobody else shouts Joe Dunn out, that I do that because he is such an amazing person. He's curmudgeonly, yes, but also amazing. So, so yeah, I, I, I was with Joe Dunn since the 90s. My brother suggested me for a book. I did a book for them. And then, like, we didn't talk for a long time. And then, like, I moved out to here for personal reasons. And, um, and I was not interested in going back to Florida. And I found Joe Dunn and Joe Dunn uh, uh, had a place to stay and he had work and he made sure I was taken care of. And he, he, you know, he would make sure that you had money to eat or whatever, you know, like he, he's one of the cornerstones of, of, of comics that like nobody talks about. Yeah. I mean, and especially the, comics in Texas. The fact that like, I, I miss Antarcticon, man. Yeah. I, I, so Joe Dunn in his real life is a, is a doctor, is a general practitioner. And like, yeah. so like there's a lot of stuff that he doesn't have time for. So he just focuses on, on like, on making comics and taking care of his artists. And, but yeah, uh, back when like, it was like a big, when Anarchic Press was like this sprawling thing, like that was, that was really fun. And we had some really good times together uh, uh, back during those days when, when like, when it seemed like, you know, like, it, it was during like that that second golden age of comics that nobody really talks about, but it was really a golden age, like in like the the late '90s, early 2000s, yeah. where where uh, image comics had just started to diversify, and you had that major shift in comics where where people don't talk about how 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 important that shift was, where comics became more European. Yeah, the fact that you had books like Ultra and the girls coming from Image, like yeah. Walking Dead, but like these are the kind of books that weren't happening at all. And then uh, Marvel went once again, like because Joe Casada. I know we talked about one more day, but people don't realize all of the key stuff that him and Jameis did in the early two thousands at Marvel, and the fact that that was a company that was bankrupt, like just straight Joe up. Bankrupt. One of the reasons that I am sitting here in front of you because he talked, he told editorial because. He has been like a fixture of Marvel Comics even after he stopped being editor-in-chief. And when my stuff came across his desk, he's one of the guys that he said, this is the guy. Stay yeah. with this guy because this is the guy. The eras, I have to say that each of these eras uh, in Marvel have like their own unique imprint. Uh, and Joe Quesada's era was very much new takes on old characters. Yeah. Uh, Axel Alonso's take I know that you know his take on Marvel was is, has been controversial. I loved his take, which was which Thanks. was legacy characters and trying something that is new, creating like iconic new iconic characters. I love that, and I I love the fact that those characters still persist. And um and and uh, I have to say that um I am already whispering in uh in a in the ears of uh, anyone who will listen to me at Marvel, uh, 
so that once my Black Panther run is done, that I can glom on one or two of those of those legacy characters because I love them. I want I want to do Ironheart so badly. You have no idea. I I love I love the the Bendis era for Iron Man and Ironheart and these people these people who who ragged on Alonzo. It's like, do you guys not realize that Phase Four would not exist if it wasn't for Axel Alonzo? Yeah, well, I mean, not only that, but like, but Axel, a lot of the stuff, uh, uh, and 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 even even before that, remember Axel Alonzo? He was the editor during. Dude, he was the best Spider-Man. Guy. Like he was the guy who's when when Joe Casado was doing not Joe Casado when the Three Microsoft was doing Amazing Spider-Man, and Bendis was doing Ultimate Spider-Man, and we had Spider-Man Tangled Web, and we had um oh, what was it. Paul Jenkins on Spider-Man. That was all Alonzo. And most people don't understand that. Like, that was the best era to be a Spider-Man fan, in my opinion. It was... A, a lot of a lot of really innovative stuff happened during Alonzo's run. That was really, like, a new house of ideas that... Uh, that, that, that it'll be seen as that... Like, history will remember him kindly. And and very very much the same as it with the current editor in chief, CB Sabolsky, because yeah. CB Sabolsky is interested in like grand operas, which yeah, is comics, which I love. So cool. Like he's he's the um he's the um oh 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 I can't believe that that my uh the guy who created the Guardians of the Galaxy and Thanos and uh, and um Jim Starlin. Jim Starlin. He's a Jim he has a Jim Starlin mindset. He's interested in grand operas. With characters who may start in one place, but can do anything and can go anywhere, and he's interested. He, CB Sabolsky sees the big, the big characters as just important as the little guys, and vice versa. Well, I met CB. Um, it was the only time I've ever been to San Diego, and I'd love to go back. And anybody who can find me a way to go to San Diego, just let me know. I mean, what? Yeah, <laughs> talk to the Antarctic Press guys. They drive out there every year. If you're willing to work the booth, then they, they, they have a spot for you. I'm, dude, you, you know I am. You know me. I, 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 you know what? I'm going to tell Joe Dunn you said that, and he'll reach out to you And and around San Diego time. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's going to be this year. I'm not sure what they're what they what they're looking out for their uh, like four table months staff. To set that up. But yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, I'd be totally down. Um. Yeah. But um, it was when I met CB for the first time. And I met. This was a great show for me because I met C.B. Sapolsky. I met Lanil Francis Yu. First time I met Jim Lee, Travis Charest, Lanil Fr- and um, Artisel Lanil, but um, Scott Williams, all those guys. And um, when this and basically when this happened, it was when C.B. had just finished the Love Loners, the Runaways spinoff, which I mm-hmm. wish they had continued because I love that miniseries. And um, and when I met him, I'm like, oh, this is just a cool dude. He just likes to talk about comic books, which makes me happy because I like talking about comic books. He's got a borderline unhealthy amount. And um, so, the, so the whole time I'm like, this is a guy who just seems to be getting those like odd little one-offs, that miniseries. And then out of nowhere, I'm like, when he got the editor-in-chief position, I know there was some controversy which we which don't need to go into here. But um, but like when all, when all that happened, and he got that position. I'm like, yes, this is the guy. This is right now. This is the guy we need. And Marvel proved that in 2018. 
Yeah, you know, I, I was I was uh, I was working for them, but I was still freelance. I, 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 there was no contract when when uh, when CB took over, and um, and the day that that happened. Uh, I think either I emailed Ricky or I got an email from Ricky and, and the response was, and like, nothing changes for you. Nothing changes. Like this is a, for you, this is a seamless transition. So, yeah, I mean that, and that, that's one of the things because Joey Welchins is real good friends with CB Sabolsky. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that, that he impressed on me is, is that CB Sabolsky loves marble like his wall looks like your wall wow you know what i'm saying like yeah. he loves like he's like me like i'm not gonna know every single little thing about comics but i love the saga and he's the same way cb sabolsky loves the marble saga and and he and joey was telling me like that's why he was super excited about cb taking over at marvel because you're going to get that that big operatic scope that like the Marvel Saga, uh, 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 the, the the way that he sees the Marvel Saga. Yeah, that's and it shows. Like I remember one that all those new number ones came out because you had Immortal Hulk, you had the Avengers, you had a Nick Spencer Spider Man, and I'm like, these are all hitting, and I'm spending too much money, but these are all hitting, and I'm like, damn it, score the god, which look at what he did with Thor, man, like Thor, like this is like. My, I, outside of Simonson Aaron, I've never been two. He because he has two Simonson eras. He has he has the the, the Lady Thor run, and he had he has the Gore the God Butcher run. Those are both Simonson no, level. No, I no the, those are my Thor runs. My eras are Simonson and Aaron. Yeah, yeah, those are them. Because like I never thought Simonson got done on Thor until Jason Aaron did Thor, and yeah. I'm like, wow, you just you just one up Walter Simonson. And I know there's someone who's gonna be mad on that about that, but I don't really give a shit. So, <laughs> but I mean, like, but that's what you want. That that's even what Walter Simonson wants. Like, like if if the if the end of the of Thor, if the end of Thor is Walter Simonson, then Walter Simonson is forgotten. But if but if but if Oliver Coppiel picks up the mantle and runs with it and gives you something amazing. Walter Simonson lives on, and if if uh, Jason Eric and Esad Ribic, if they pick it up and they do something amazing, Walter Simonson lives on. Like that's that's the cycle of comics, and that's how these guys live forever. By the way, it's just me or like I, you're included in this. It's just me or comic artists have a really cool names. I mean, the fact that you oh. have like Olivia Capel and like Joe Madeira and like all these really cool names. I don't I, know. I clearly doesn't think anyone can pronounce his name because it's like I'm Joe. I, Thinking, I keep thinking that, that I should be like a, I, I should, I should do it like a Christopher or like a C. E. Allen or something like that. But like I've been Chris Allen since I was in my twenties, and Chris Allen is just fine. But 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 yeah, I, I if I could if I could have any like alliterative kind of like kind of like synonymity, I, I would want to be something that sounds like a Jerry Ordway. Jerry Ordway is like the perfect comic book artist name to me, anyway. Like. If you meet Jerry Ordway, you're like, oh, so you draw the comics. Yeah, it's kind of like how I can never, I will never be the Ian in comics because Ian Churchill exists. 
And I feel he like if I try to become the Ian in comics, that guy will find a way to break my face. And I'm like, that guy is scary. He's like real life cable. So I'm just you know like, how many Chris Allen's there are in comics? The most famous one drew Donald Duck. Oh, dude. Don, okay, we, we can one. talk for years about Donald Duck comics, so we can't go down that road. If we're going <laughs> to do that, we got to get uh, Omar for near Mint Condition and bring him on here. Yeah, let's do it. You know what? Do you want to do that sometime? Do you just want to bring Omar from the Rick Edition on here and talk about duck books? Yeah. Hey, man, you let me know. Look, look, I'm not doing a lot of conventions this year just because we have a we have a really packed schedule. So I'm always here. So if you want to black out an hour, we could we can make it happen. Oh yeah, um, I'll t- I'll talk to him, man. Because I do you follow his channel at all. Uh, what's it called? Nearman Condition. Basically- I think. I- I think I'm subscribed to that channel. Yeah, because he's the guy that they, that Marvel gets a lot of that David gets a lot of the Marvel content to, like a lot of the early announcements and stuff. Like he actually was the one who announced X Men Omnibus by Claremont Volume Five. Oh, cool! Yeah, I am. I am subscribed to so many channels with, with the with the uh, with the uh, with the alerts on that. Like I, I think I only get maybe like one percent of like the actual alerts. There, there are channels I haven't I haven't seen in like forever. That keep chugging out content, so I have to go through and like, and I have I have to go through and call the list and see what see what I'm going to keep. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I I belong to his subscription. Before oh. um, before we start talking about some of your upcoming books, I wanted to talk I want to talk about out of body experience because I found yeah. out about through my research and I'm like this looks really neat. And you mentioned Arctic Press and have the impact they've had on your career. Talk about it. Talk about this. So. Out of body experience is is uh, is the brainchild of Carrie Valderrama, who runs uh, who runs Alamo City Studios downtown. Alamo City Studios is like is uh, it's a it's a it's a building where creatives can go and they have like they have like quiet studio space where you can film your commercials or whatever. You can have offices there. It's a beautiful place. And he wanted to do a comic book as maybe like a launching pad for like some sort of other media. Um, it is, it's a, it is a spiritual cyberpunk crime noir. Uh, it is all of those things. It is, it's very focused, but also well, it's a little gonzo. Um, he he put it, he put the original script together with uh, with uh, his collaborator CM Bratton, and you should follow both of them on uh, on all the all the platforms. So Carrie Valderrama and CM Bratton, and um, and I came into the project through Lee Duhigg at Antarctic Press because they wanted to do um, they, they wanted to do um, they wanted to create a um, a futuristic San Antonio. So they needed someone who loves drawing backgrounds, and that's me. <laughs> so I, I like creating characters, but I love creating worlds. So, so, so that so they reached out to me, and they sat down, and um, and we we just spent uh, we we spent we we spent our time hammering everything out, and then creating the Kickstarter campaign, and and doing all that stuff, and uh, and. Um, and by the time it had come out, I had already moved on to Marvel Comics. And all of a sudden, everyone is asking me about Ode. And I'm like, and I'm like, oh yeah, that that happened. It wasn't a dream. I guess that really did happen. 
and yeah, so that the, their 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 original script for O because that's what they gave me to work with. They gave me the 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 screenplay. The original script for O has already won some awards, and uh, I hope I hope I hope it moves on to other media because it's a fascinating story, and there's a lot of places they can go with it. See, I just picture that moment where, like, one of the guys for like CB calls you up for Marvel. It's like, "Hey, Christopher, you're exclusive to us, man. Where did this book come from?" You're like, "I drew it a long time ago. I promise." I know, but they already look. One of the things that Ricky told me uh, when when we were talking about stuff, I was like, "Have you ever heard of this artist?" He's like, "Yes." I'm like, "Have you ever heard of this guy?" He's like, "Yes." He's like, "We know everyone." It's like. We like like we are constantly on the lookout, and we are always looking for like you know like so. If there's someone out there, we know them. Let's let's talk about someone because you've uh, one of the best things that Marvel's been doing in recent years is the uh, Marvel's voices. Yeah, it, it, it that's an amazing, and that that was a that was the first gig that I got like right. Uh, I think. Right after our, our, our pre uh, pre Stormbreakers, I think. Um, but yeah, I did it. I they asked me what character I wanted, Ironheart. Of course, I said Ironheart. And it's the only time I've gotten to draw the character, and I still have the pages, and I love them with all my heart. We we have to talk about this because I I have a I have a brief aside I want to bring up. Um, because when people, when unfortunate, when let's call them unfortunates on YouTube, when they when they complain about representation and why it's not that big a deal, because clearly, as and I know there's a certain sense of irony between saying this, but clearly as like white cis males, clearly they're they know all about representation and why it's so important. Yeah, and um, I, one of our neighbors, like. She's she's very sensitive when it comes to violence. Her little girl, one of her neighbors, her family, the little girl. She wants to watch superhero stuff, but she's also very sensitive to violence. Even 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 somebody that's like PG thirteen. Mm-hmm. So I loaned them a bunch of the X Men animated series DVDs since they don't have Disney Plus right now, and yeah. they started watching it. And she had two takeaways I really appreciated because we started talking. She saw the first two episodes, and she said um, the character that she brought up first was Jubilee. And um, their daughter, she's she's black and she's she's adopted by them, and by the by this by the family, they're white. She's black, and the first thing she said was, "Jubilee." She's I like Jubilee, and I asked her about Jubilee, and I said, "Well, why do you like the character? Because she's a foster kid." Oh wow, she's a foster, and I'm like I didn't even think about that. And that day I was wearing, I was wearing a storm shirt that day and we were talking and, um, cause our neighborhood, just everyone's very close to each other. It's part of why I love living here. And, um, and she saw my shirt and she said, wait, storm's not black, storm's white. And I asked her and I said, what do you mean? She said in the cartoon, she looks white. And I explained to her, no, because the colors in comics and cartoons were a little bit limited then because you had different layers of palettes. So you'd have characters that could blend in the background if they were colored too dark, too light, and so they had to make adjustments to it. But I said, no, Storm's black. And the thing that, the, and I realized the reason that she noticed Jubilee first was because for her, it's like, oh no, Storm's white. This is the character I most closely relate to because they are foster. And when I told her, oh no, and I mentioned that she was Japanese, and she thought, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. And 
then this is the character that's the point of view character for the X-Men in the animated series. And I'm like, this right here is why representation is important. And it's always been that way in comics. It's like the representation thing is nothing new. What is right. new? And and let's be, let's just say less than gentle here for just a second. What's new here is that being a crybaby is something that you can monetize now. It's 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 a career. Yeah. You can make a career out of throwing a temper tantrum like the three-year-old and people will go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this goes from from where we are now, from from uh, from from our space online, uh to uh, you know, blogs, um Reddit, all the way up to, to major news networks. Yeah. All the way up. Being a crybaby temper tantrum is good business right now. And that is unfortunate because Storm wielded Mjolnir or a version of it. She was the leader of the X-Men. Yep. Um, Magneto, who was who who is Jewish, was the leader of the X-Men. Like representation has always mattered to not just to Marvel, but to comics, like, 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 uh, Neil Adams was a huge champion of diversity in comics, especially when he went to DC. Uh, uh, John, he, he was one of the creators of John Stewart. So, so, so this is the only thing that's new is people throwing a temper tantrum about it and just taking the fun away from everyone else. And all of the stories that they talk about that they love so much, especially if you read the X-Men, are all stories about diversity, multiculturalism, inclusivity, and, and tolerance. And yeah. Change my mind. Well, I mean, hell. Um, I know Chuck Austin is much maligned, and like the more I've seen interviews with him, the more I realize this was a guy who was trying to do things that he wanted to do, but it was just an uphill battle for him. Um, yeah. And then the fact that the fans created more of an uphill battle for the guy. Like I listened to an interview with him on the other day on the po- the podcast Rebrocast, and I'm like, mm-hmm. "Damn, you're a nice person." I, and he had so many good ideas, and I'm like, "I want the Chuck Austin now, who's writing for Comicsology, um, and he has this like Western series with Pat Olaf, and it's one of the coolest things I've ever read." And oh, wow. I want that Chuck Austin to come back and do like a six issue like nostalgia X Men series like they've been doing. Because he talked about in this interview, he talked about, you know, I think he didn't even realize that he created that he brought the first uh, gay X Men character into the team. Because, like, the first canonically gay character, because we've 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 gone back and we've looked at like very obvious things that Chris Claremont was trying to set up that we can only do now in yeah. comics stories. But people forget that North Star was introduced to the X Men as a member of the team during Chuck yeah. Austin's run, and that was in two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah, it was it was, it was yeah, it yeah. was in the newspaper. It was a, it was a huge deal. And they outed him in Avenger in, in uh, Alpha Flight is still on the like. And I say this as someone who's met Lobdell and he's been nice enough to me despite all the things I heard later about Lobdell, but that's not even here or there. But yeah. um, when I that Alpha Flight issue was one of the worst comics I've ever read because I, <laughs> I appreciate the concept, the execution, of the idea. But like we said about concept versus execution. It's like, I'm going to be in this giant fist battle where I do this with my face and I'm gay. It's like, uh, what? Did that just happened? Well, I mean, like, uh, well, so, so 
so so let's so let's so let's so let's circle back. This is why it's very important to have a diverse writer's bullpen to pull from, a diverse yeah. writer pool to pull from, because as good as the intentions are from a straight white guy, they're not going to understand the process of coming out to your friends yeah. or coming out to the people that you work with or the people that you fight with. They're not going to understand, you know, the pain that you don't just, you know, shoot a fist in the air and exclaim it for everyone that, that it, it's oftentimes a very intimate and painful moment. And that, and that, and that the moment of triumph is the acceptance, right? The yeah. moment of triumph is that. And, and so Marvel and DC, but I think, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm biased, but I think Marvel a little bit more, they're much more, they're, they're much more invested in like, in a, in a, in a, in a very diverse writer's pool where, where these people can speak in voices that are, uh, that, that parallel the characters they're writing, but can also take their experience as a woman or a black woman or a queer woman or a transgender person or whatever. And they can, and they can show us new ways of thinking about characters that aren't their particular group because those lived experiences, they, they, they create interesting stories, which is why having Eve Ewing on black Panther full circle is such an interesting pick because her voice for T'Challa comes from a different place. And, and for what he's tasked to do, it gives you a much more interesting version of the character and different than what, what, what another writer would do, different than a Chris Claremont, different than a, you know, like a, 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 a Steve Englehart, different than those guys. So, so yeah, so yeah, but, but the, 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 the crybaby culture now, I, I think that, I, I mean, it's difficult to drown out and let's be honest, sometimes it's kind of fun. We, we've all watched our own crybaby content. I have the crybaby channels that I like to watch, but we have to figure out what their place is in fandom where they're not just ruining the fun for everybody else because we can't pay attention to what's going on over the sound of the temper tantrums. Yeah. And when you have, um, you know, hell, let's just talk about it. Uh, when you have somebody like Richard Meyer trying to sue Mark Wade <laughs> and, and the fact that Mark Wade is like, here's my lawyer, Mark Zaid. And it's the one time where I agreed where I agree with Richard Meyer, where I'm like, that's actually kind of funny. Because he even said, all all, all conflict aside, the fact that there is a lawyer named Mark Zaid, I feel like this is an alter ego, like his superhero alter ego. It's like, here's lawyer Mark alter, alter ego Mark Wade, Mark Zaid. I'm like, damn it, Richard Meyer, I should not find you funny right now, and that's funny. But um, the fact that he was just upfront and is like, the fact that he basically was like, oh, I'm going to sue you because you don't want me to release my comic book. And I'm like, Okay, you're a child, man. And I love the fact that this guy, he's like, that 
I love the fact that Wade was like, yeah, so all the money that didn't go towards the case because that stuff got dropped early, we gave it all back. What happened to Richard Myers' money that he put that everyone gave to him? Yeah. And I'm like, and he never talked about it. But I'm like, dude, that is why you don't push your little crybaby channel too far because the real world is going to start looking at you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, look, look at what crybaby culture did to Ethan Van Skyver. Let's talk about Ethan. Yeah, Ethan Van Skyver was uh, was one of the most celebrated comic artists of the of the early mid two thousands. Nobody even. I saw a video. Have you seen this? Where uh, somebody shows. I don't want to be. I want to be. I, I, I don't want to be spreading any 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 kind of thing. But his signature is. You can trace a certain symbol in it. I know. Oh, well, so, I have a book signed by him. It's the New X Men Omni before he went full Ethan. And I'm actually when I meet Mark Silvestri, I'm going to see if he can actually. Through a signature that actually just removes that signature. It's very, very, it's it's very sad that 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 people that people are are are, are so easily lured to places where they can justify just being mean to other people and being mean to to groups because it's profitable or because they found an echo chamber that can constantly agree with them and amplify like their worst impulses i mean behind you on your background right now are the x-men yep there's black people there's blue people there's asian people there's white people there's straight people there's gay people there's bi people and no one's ever going to not tell me that wolverine is not bisexual i'm very sorry say what Tyler Claremont X-Men was bisexual, let's be honest. Because I'm sorry, exactly. if you live on an island where everyone looked that good, if you live in, if you live in a private state where everyone looked that good, and you were written by Chris Claremont, yeah. It, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, but like, the reason that the X-Men persist is because they are for everyone. That's the reason that people love them so much. It's not because, you know, of this character or that character, there are characters that are superstars, there are characters that are not. But, but you know, many of these characters in a vacuum don't work as well as the multiculturalism. And Chris Claremont pulled a lot of that from Star Trek. Exactly. The multiculturalism of Star Trek. So, so again, full circle, this is not anything that's new. What's new is that people are grifting off of negative reactions to stuff that's not new and not shocking to anyone but them and like they're like they're like pretend to cry baby culture. Yep. It's just it's ridiculous. Um yep. I wanted to touch on one more comic that you've got coming out because Yeah yeah. We talked about this before the show and this this is some classic creators coming together and you can do a cover for it and I'm super jealous of you and that's um the Avengers War Cross Time. Yeah, so um, so that so one of the things that you do as a Stormbreaker is that you um is that they they um they assign you um they they have they have a cover a cover list and and um and you uh you select the cover that you want to do from that cover list and it's basically it's a lottery system. 
So, so I, I picked the Avengers cover because a, um, I, I really liked the 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 uh, the idea of uh, of the uh, the first appearance of T'Challa, but B because I really wanted to read that issue, and it is a hot mess. It is fantastic. If you please, everyone listening to this, it's, it's Avengers fifty two. Please read it. The Grim Reaper is in there, and his costume is like. I, his costume is amazing. It is, it's like hot pink and green. Uh, the only thing it's missing is like stripes on the pants. It's and which issue was that again? I think it's Avengers Fifty Two. Is the first? Uh, is the first? Uh, it's when Black Panther joins the Avengers. Yeah. I f- yeah, I found it here. The only thing that I changed because I get, I couldn't do it is that um that Grim Reaper costume is a beautiful thing. Is that um? This is real, guys, because I know I know you're listening. Uh, the Grim Reaper's costume in this comic, his shirt is a crop top. So like, did I describe so, that? Yeah. It, so 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 it's a crop top that hangs over like the skull and crossbones, and I I couldn't I couldn't do it. I, I there's there's some lines I can't wrap my head around, and like the Grim Reaper. Wearing a crop top is just too it's too weird. The skull and crossbones looks like a tick. It does. It's well, I mean, it's it's back in the day. You know, this is these are I'm not sure how close we are to the time where the, the artists were working for free. Because there's a time in Marvel Comics where Marvel had no money and um and Stan well, and Stan they're doing fairly well then. This is like 1968. So that so that so that might be because because uh that might be the time where Marvel didn't have any money because there's a time where it was where it was a it was the classic stall it was it was, it was a classic stable and you know yeah. the Busema the Busema brothers uh, Romita uh, those guys and and Stan didn't have any money and those guys were like you know like until we can get our head above water we'll do the work for free and then you know like we'll we'll talk about compensation later and that's there's 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 a, there's a chunk of a few years where where that's how they got through it and they continue to publish stuff but the artist didn't get paid i mean i don't know how they live i i, I would love to talk to uh, to romita senior about it because because that, that was a that was a very fast but that was that's the beauty of comics right there that they believed so much in what they were doing in this strange little space that they were willing to just say you know what this one's on the house the thing that i find interesting about this cover um, when you look it up, when you, when you look up who worked on the book, because you have Roy Thomas, who's the Marvel mainstay. He's is that still... Don Heck uh, on the interiors? Uh, John Buscema. It's funny. Oh, wow. Yeah, because Buscema's on the cover. But then it's interesting because you have Sam Rosen on the cover, but then you have Vince Coletta on the interiors. And anyone who's worked in comics knows about the prolific, prolificness and controversy of Vince Coletta. Uh, Comic Strokes has a fantastic video on Vince Coletta for anybody who wants to watch that. It is one of the most fascinating stories. And if you do watch that video, please stay till the end because it his letter, his resignation is that that, that that's what comic lore is all about. Yep. 
because we talk about the, the the Green Reaper design, but then you have Sam Rosen who did Inking versus Coletta. And weirdly enough, you'd think with the infamy that it would almost have, have almost have to have Coletta on the cover. You know? Well, I mean, remember the thing about these guys, I mean, all these guys, is that is that they're they're workmen. So yeah. so so they had to have a specific skill level, but there was never anything that was particularly precious about anything that they were doing. I mean, like if, if, if it was me and I had a time machine and could do anything I wanted, um, Dick Ayers would be inking uh, Jack Kirby on the fantastic four for like the entire run. Cause his inks were in my opinion, the best inks. My, my, I'm an, I'm a, I'm a super nineties guy. My favorite inker is always going to be Tim Townsend. <laughs> I, 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 I knew Tim Townsend right before he went, he went away to, uh, to, um, to work with Dan Panosian at Image, um, yeah, Tim Townsend. Is, Tim Townsend is a is, is a very sweet guy, and he Tim Townsend. One if there's one thing you need to know about him, Tim Townsend loves comics. He's always loved comics. He is a he is a because Tim Townsend is like six feet tall, a blonde haired blue eyed dude. He's I mean like like he looks like a movie star, but yeah. if you talk to him. He is the sweetest dork you've ever met. So, and and I think that that's the the reason that a lot of people love Tim Townsend is because you see that in his artwork. When you when you see a guy like the first time I saw um, Ivan Rias's work, Ivan Rias, I said that it, it was in it was in the pages of Green Lantern, and I said that is a guy who loves drawing superheroes. That is a guy. Who loses himself in a great superhero drawing, and that's beautiful. That's what you want. First thing I saw Ryerson was in Lady Death. Oh, I. You know what? I never bought any of the Bad Girl comics ever. I. 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 Go back and I did buy. I did buy the um, the Clayton Moore toys though, because the sculpts were fantastic. Mike Diodato was one of the guys who got. One of the guys who, before he came over to Marvel, like his one of his first one of his last works before he moved over to Electra with Marvel was Lady Death. Yeah, and then Ivan Rice as well, and Chris Pacello even did some work with them. Deodato and um freaking uh not um oh not Greg Horn um oh my gosh what's the uh Greg Land those guys. That should be a lesson. Those guys should be a lesson to everyone who wants to draw comments, including me. Let people make fun of you all they want for using photo reference to an to a ridiculous degree. Those guys leaned on photo reference for a decade, and they are master artists now. Yeah. They don't need any photo reference for anything because it's just memory to them. And they can just knock it up. And Brian Hitch is the same way. He used to take Brian Hitch days to draw a page. And now Brian Hitch has like a regular, keeps bankers hours now. Brian Hitch! Crazy. But so there's no such thing as bad reference, photo ref. You could draw whatever you want. And and um, and um if somebody's like, oh, he swipes all his photos, who cares? I'm biased because Mike is a, Mike is a friend of the show. Um, yeah. Yeah. His stuff that he did with his dad, because they did a cartoonist kayfabe on that. Oh yeah, back, no, back in, 
Oh my god! I need to bug him about it because it's so cool. I ordered a copy of that, and it got lost in the mail. I need to order mm-hmm. another one because you because there there the stuff he did two books that were republished by uh, I can't remember who, but they're easy to find on eBay. And um, yeah, I, I need Caliber. to get a copy of this. this huh? Because yeah, it was Caliber. Yeah, and um, they're beautiful examples of collage in comics. They're, 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 I mean, like, and I, I know that he was a teenager when he drew those, but they're masterpieces. They're master. They're, there's, there's two books and they're masterpieces. There's Proteus and Ramthar and Jonas. There yeah. Yeah. I, I remember it was, it was very, um, it was very bittersweet because we had the creator of Caliber on the show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a person who needs more people to talk about him. Because he's kind of like the he was kind of like the Roger Corman of indie comics in the nineties. Because yeah. people don't realize how many people started with Caliber. And when I had him, because we talked about Brubaker, we talked about the Adada, we talked about David Mack, we talked about all these people. Yeah. And and then a, a couple months later, when I was finishing up the show, he passed away. Yeah. And I was like, this is hard because I'm like, do I put the show out there? Will it be difficult for people to listen to, or will it be some, or will it be something for people to remember that voice? And that, yeah, we never want those guys pass away unremembered. I mean, like the the most important thing that people like that, who who spend their lives in the trenches, you know, like you know, carving out a little piece of of perfection, of artistic perfection. The most important thing for us to do is to remember those guys, is to remember, like, is to remember, you know. Joe Dunn, who made sure that artists, you know, had like a bed and food and could draw comics. I mean, like, that's the most important thing you can do for people like that. Yeah, I, I, that's awesome. I'm going to listen to that. Yeah, I'll send it. I'll send it to you now. It's on our YouTube channel back when we used to upload those on there. So the sound is not fantastic, but I want to make sure you get to hear that because, like you said, Gary Reed's a person like who is constantly in trenches, who's always working in comics, and that voice needs to be remembered. It's like when, um, we lost, we lost uh, Pacheco not too long ago. I mean, it's not the best sounding show we made, but it needs to be. Ma- yeah. That one and Neil Adams were tough because Neil Adams was like Gil Kane. He was working till like the day he passed away. So that was, that was, that was tough because, you know, Neil Adams had already had one renaissance and I mean, he had another one in him. That guy, he was even the last time I saw him, which was maybe like five or six years before he passed away. He was still figuring out new ways to learn art. And he always had these projects for me to do. And I really should. I, I'm going to do one of them because he's he's not around anymore for 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 him to yell at me for like not doing anything he says. But um, I'm going to do one of them. One of the things that he said is he said that. Um, if you want to find out how you draw, just trace photographs because you will, your artistic style will eventually come out through your tracings. You'll figure out what to keep and what to discard and what looks good to you. And and the, the, the pictures that he was the most proud of the last time I saw him were tracings because he's like, I traced this perfectly. This is exactly what I want my art to look like. 
the man was, I mean, he was, he was already a legend and he's like, I found a new way to do something. I want to be, that's what I want to be. Yeah. I've, I've got a story I need to share about Neil. Adams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like, he's, he's one of those people. I, for people who don't know who he is, I'm surprised that you don't people. Um, the fact that he was, when he came to Alamo city, they had him on the local news channel in the morning. When I was working, and they had the they I had the we just had the morning news on, and he was on there, and I'm like, holy crap, it's Neil Adams, and I told yeah. people who that guy was because they didn't know who he was, they weren't comic readers, and they were like, wait, what? And I'm like, yeah, this is the dude on TV right now. Um, there's a there's a there's a used bookstore here in San Antonio. Um, wow. they had a they wouldn't make, and there was a book a comic book that was not in good enough condition, they would cut it up and they use it for promo art. They put it on like boxes and other stuff and they put it throughout the store. And I was in the store and I was talking to to, to basically the comic guy at the store. And there was a copy of X-Men number 58. And it was in the back. And I asked about it. And he said, oh, well, the they basically said that that book's not good enough, not in a good enough condition to sell. So they're going to cut it up and use it to make promo artwork. Oh, wow. And I said, well, how much? I'll buy it right now. And he said, well, you can't buy it because it's not available to sell. But why don't you go over here? And I'll go over there, too. And, I mean, they were going to get rid of it anyway. Oh, that's awesome. So I told Neil Adams the story. Mm-hmm. I had talked to him before to come. And it was it had been a couple months down the road. Like I, This was when I was doing like five or six, seven, eight conventions a year. Cause I was just, mm-hmm. I was just going to media pass crazy. I'm like, Oh, you'll give me a pass. You'll give me a pass. Holy shit. Okay. I'll go cover all these cons. There's no way I'll burn myself out. <laughs> and, um, and Neil recognized me at a show. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, I am a dude who has a podcast. It's not even a good podcast. And this guy is recognizing me. Just shut up and play it cool. All right. Yeah, man, it's nice to see you again too. How you been? And we're just talking. And, he, and um, I and, and I brought up the comic, and I told him how how I got it, what happened, and he told me. Um, and I and I was honest with him. I said I am I am conventioning on a budget right now because I just paid all my bills. I just paid my rent, mm-hmm. and he just said, "You know what? I'm going to see you again. Pay me back next time." And he just signed it and he gave it to me. And if you know how that's a very Neil Adams thing. Yeah, but at the same time, you know how Neil Adams is about the autograph per book. Yeah, and... well, yeah. Neil Adams Neil Adams is is well he he's kind of an enigma because Neil Adams is is like like the, the story you told is a very Neil Adams story where he's like, just pay me back next time. Now he'll remember next time he sees you. But because Neil Adams does not give anything away for free to anybody. It doesn't matter if Julie Schwartz rose from the grave and walked over to his table. That print is $20. Cough it up. So, so yeah, I, but the other thing, and the thing that I loved, because it was the same with me, is that he remembered you. Yeah. And Neil Adams remembered pretty much everyone who came to his table more than once. Yeah. He's just, he's that type of person. He's very involved in people who come to his table and he will talk to you and he'll have conversations with you and he may come off as kind of gruff or kind of acerbic, but that's just, that's just, you know, the times you grew up in and the place you grew up in 
He's a, he's a hard scrabble guy, but he was. I I I, I miss him having him in event, at, at conventions, and it was very sad to hear that he had passed away. Um, because, like I said, he had another renaissance in him, no doubt. Yeah. The um the interview I've always loved was the one he did for Kevin Smith on Fat Man on Batman, because I didn't know the Superman story. I didn't know the Sequel Schuster story. When I heard that, I'm like, oh. you're the guy. You're not just the guy who makes these comics and draws just work that was just 30 years ahead of the game. Because I remember, like, if you were listening to any interviews or podcasts with the Image guys, like with McFarland and Lifefeld and all that, they're like, mm-hmm. Jack Kirby was awesome. Don't get us wrong. Neil Adams was the person we were looking at. Neil Adams changed comics forever. I mean, like, yeah. that, that's why, like, the thing to remember about Neil Adams is two things. Neil Adams' work at the time of his publication never sold well. So bizarre. But every editor who saw him understood that this is a legacy artist. This is an artist that will sell books for decades. Like if he draws one issue for you, you will be able to sell that issue forever. And that you can't say that about every artist. Sometimes you just need a guy to get it out the door. But you come across a Brian Hitch or a Neil Adams or Arthur Adams or an Alex Ross, those are the guys you let them do what they need to do to produce their best work because that work, that work is the work that is legacy work and will make you money forever. I mean, the for me, the we talk about impactful work. Look at uh, Lawn Shot by Arthur Adams and Will Sportacio and and Nocenti, we need to credit her first because Nocenti's voice is such a unique one still. And, and Nocenti is like, I'm so glad that Louise Simonson is finally getting her propers for yeah. like all the work that she did because back in the day, people really didn't talk about, uh, because back in the day, the artists were the central were, were the central component of comics and we now live in an era where the writer is a, is a central component of comics. So a lot of these writers, like Anne Nocenti, like a like Louise Simonson, these people that you're like, women oh, were writing comics. Like I loved this comic, you know. They're fine. They're, people are like people are giving them the marquees that they deserve, and that 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 is very very cool. Do I wish that I lived in an era that I lived in the '90s where like artists were getting like million dollar contracts? Who doesn't? But but I prefer this. I prefer this. I prefer this era better because people read my work, and that's more important. It, 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 it just like just like uh just like the the the, the guy who ran caliber like read, yeah yeah you, you want to be remembered and so when somebody picks up your comic and opens it up and read and looks at your pictures and reads your artwork i'm not saying that's better than a million dollar contract it's pretty cool i've got my original long shot trade paperback one for the 80s over there behind me yeah. and that is a book i will keep forever and I know they're doing the X-Men Omnibus Volume 5. It's going to have that. And it's going to have the Nightcrawler mini which I'm so excited about because Dave Cockrum is one of the best artists of all time. Um, and seeing that on a big oversized format is going to be fantastic. But like those thick like Marvel collections that they used to do back in the day for even the trade paperbacks with like yeah. the oversized paper stock where it's just awesome. And yeah, I didn't have the sheen that people want from comics now, but like it works perfectly for what they're doing. And seeing the original Arthur Adams pencils and the Wills Portacio inks. And I know with X-Men Legends, I loved that series. I was so upset when they canceled it. The recent series that they did. Yeah. 
But the fact that they ended with Wolf's Protasio doing Bishop was just like, and <laughs> doing long shot. And I'm like, you know what? If you're gonna if you're gonna cut it short, cut it short with the original with the creator of Wolverine, with Decenti doing long shot and Wolf's Protasio doing Bishop. That's how you end it. If you're gonna end it, end it right there. Because people are gonna remember. And my whole thing, the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, man, we had Wolves doing that. Man, I know it would have taken like a century, but if they had gotten Arthur Adams to pencil those issues and not take any way, anything away from the artist who worked on the book, but imagine if they had brought back three issues of Longshot and brought back Adams and brought back Cordesio. Yeah, that would be that would be amazing. Uh, and, and, and Arthur Adams, it, I mean, again, and this is this is not just a, I mean this is not just a, you know props to 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 Ricky Purden but also to CB Sabolsky because these guys love comics yeah and so and so Arthur Adams I guarantee you has an open invitation yeah he has an open invitation the the thing is and it's the same thing with Bradstreet if you follow uh, 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 Nick Bradstreet yeah uh, 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 Nick Bradshaw he is just He's so busy. <laughs> like, there's not enough hours in the day. Chris Batiste is the same way, man. Like, these guys are like geniuses, but like, but like their dance gets, I mean, like, it's good to see them on the stands, though. And it's good that, that there are people in comics at, at all of the companies who still have a vested interest in, in, a, in, in, a, in not moving on to the next thing, but in looking forward, but also in making sure that like these old, the the, the the masters of the ogs that they still have their place and that that people still get to see their uh, their um their, their work well this is why i love um anytime i get an opportunity to meet arthur adams see arthur arthur adams enjoys genetic convention because yeah. they're two of the most kindest people and they're really um, sweet yeah and joyce like arthur is just an absolutely stellar artist and yeah. joyce does not get enough appreciation for the work that she does. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the thing that I remember about, about seeing Arthur Adams at conventions is they always sit him next to Bruce Tim. Who, who is, who is, I mean, one of the greatest artists of our generation, a little bit of a curmudgeon though. And, but like, but they have such a lovely, a uh, 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 rapport with each other that it's it's uh that sometimes if they're having a conversation it's it's always nice to just sit back and and, and watch them watch them talk yeah yeah um was it i saw it was at phoenix comic-con um before they moved to phoenix well funny enough when they were in mm-hmm. the silicon called base arizona and they had i saw rob liefeld this is back before right, Rob like was charging like eighty bucks an autograph. This is back when he was just signing mm-hmm. for free. And I'm like, all right, you just sign his head for free. Okay, cool. I'm not gonna say a word. <laughs> but um him, it was I didn't want to go over and talk to bother him, or I didn't, I didn't want to bother the person he was talking to. Because it was mm-hmm. Rob Liefeld talking to George Perez. And just watching this conversation from a distance, because the body language said it all. Like, this was a person who all of the comic experience went away, and you saw the comic book fan. And I appreciate the fact that with Life Out, he is first to tell you 
George Perez was my primary influence. Like you look at Hawk and Dove, that's a George Perez riff. Yeah. And which I've always appreciated because a lot of you you know there are a lot there are some artists out there who won't who won't name that. It's like, no, just be upfront because this is if this is a person who inspired you, be upfront. Yeah. And like seeing that, seeing that moment. I can't even hear the conversation, but just the body mm-hmm. language um, made that a conversation worth listening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I I've known George. I knew George Perez since the nineties because he he lived in he lived in Florida. He lived in the he lived in Central Florida, um, and um, you would bump into him all the time at small shows. And uh, George Perez. Is the, was the friendliest person yeah. you, you ever met, and uh, and the humanity that he put in his comics, the emotion and the joy and the sorrow and all it was it was very real and it was a part of him. And I, I, I was talking to someone about this the other day that you really saw that not just in the way he lived, but it, but in the way that he died because he made sure that his fans were part of that process too. And, you know, I, I don't know if I would have the strength for that, but George Perez loved his life and the people who made it so special for him so much throughout his life that he wanted to make sure that he didn't close the door on people and go away, that that he was always there. And, you know, uh, I, the, I, the, the, thing that, the thing that I thought was the most beautiful was for a while, after he had had a stroke, um, he couldn't wear his, his shirts anymore because you know he wears those 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 really ugly Hawaiian shirts. Oh, yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, you know who else wears them is, is Jerry Ordway. Also wears those shirts. Yeah. But um, but he had gotten he 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 had a I don't know if he had gotten healthy enough or if it was just at a point in his process where he had started wearing the shirts again as he was you know visiting DC Comics for the last time and stuff like that. Yeah, I, it was. I was so grateful watching that, that George Perez was in the world, that we lived in a time where George Perez walked among us because that's what art is about. I mean, art, if art isn't about human connection, then what's the point of it? And to take that to its extreme, it was just just so beautiful. I was so grateful and and, um, just, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Um, my first, when you mentioned the 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 humanity that he brought with it, he brought with his work and his communication with the people he worked with, his fans. My first thought was actually Sergio Aragonés. Yeah. Because um, my when I the one year I went to San Diego Comic Con, I'm walking down I'm walking down one of the halls, and I see this tiny man with this big mustache. <laughs> And I just look over, and I just like, and I, I'm just like, you know what? This might not be him, but he looks like he looks like he's drawn. And I just look over and I say, "You're you're Sergio Aragones. Yes, I am. How are you? I said, "I'm I'm good. I brought some comics for said, Oh, come to the Dark Horse table, and I am going to be over there. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the world because I see him first creator I see at the show. It's Sergio, just walking next to me. And that's when I saw Neil Adams directly to my right afterwards. That was the first time I met Neil, met Neil Adams. I was immediately after I met Sergio Aragonés. Yeah. yeah. I, I got to ask you, what is your, what is your like first moment like that as a fan? 
Will Eisner. I met Will Eisner in the 90s. And he actually gave me a piece of comic book advice that I will carry with me forever. And then I use every time I draw a page. And I just want to set the scene for you very quickly. It was a 90s convention. I was, it was one of the first times that I was, um, that I was uh, on, uh, that I was a guest. Uh, because I had, uh, I had ghosted for one of the guys that ran AC Comics in Florida. And then they, and then he had convinced Dark Horse Comics to move me from a ghost artist to being on the titles to get to, to get title credits. Yeah. Um, so I was at the convention and and I know that Will Eisner is going to be there, but I don't know if I'm going to recognize him. But, I, you know, I want to talk to him because he's, he's I mean, he's one of my favorite artists. He, he maybe is my favorite artist. No, it's it's always a tie between him and Reed Crandall. So he's very easy to spot. He looks exactly like his drawings of himself. And um, I walk up to him and he smells like coffee and fresh pressed linen. He smells like starch and coffee. It's the best smell in the world. And, and I'm like, Mr. Eisner, I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, I, I, I draw comics. I, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And uh, can you please take a look at my artwork and, um, and give me a review? And he says, of course, he's like, step, he's like, and I have my, I remember portfolio. he says, step right over here. And, and he has his cup of coffee and, and he, he takes his glasses out and puts them on and he's flipping through it. And somebody comes up to him with some comics and he says, it'll just be a moment. I'm talking to my friend. <laughs> that was, I mean, I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. And then he said, you use a lot of medium shots. So here's what you should do. Every page where you have more than two panels, I want you to take one of those panels and I want you to pull as far back as you feel comfortable, all the way back till, till your characters are just little dots on the page. If you feel comfortable doing that, that's what I want you to do. Because here's what it's going to do for you. It's going to vary your shot, shot composition and it's going to force you to make sure that you reestablish where you are every single page where there's more than two panels. Yeah. And that's why I draw backgrounds. That's why I draw backgrounds on everything. Because I was like, make sure that you do that once a page and then you're, and then you're good to go. And, and it'll put you in the right mindset, not to just draw medium shots, but to draw close-ups and far away and to move the camera. Cause that's, that's the illusion is that the camera's constantly moving so it seems like things are constantly in motion. So yeah, Will Eisner and that story. I love that story. And like the moment you started talking about varying of the shots and pulling up, showing the backgrounds of the shots, not only does it make you more comfortable doing something some of the artists are seemingly afraid to do, even as they get more and more successful, they still you see a lot of artists who do tend to avoid backgrounds. And I give and I give credit to those who are like who are just straight up about it. But um, it really. The first thing that I thought of when you were talking about that was it establishes the area, establishes the environment, and it makes you yeah. realize you're not looking just at talking heads because you're looking at the world that's around them. And then when exactly. you said, and it's like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, I was reading a comic the other day. I, I won't say what the comic is, but the art was impeccable, but it was all medium shots. <laughs> and it drove me nuts. I'm like, I wish this person would have talked to Will Eisner. Because this person, this artist, 
needs to pull back at least once every couple of pages to reestablish where they are. Because in a lot of situations, in a lot of circumstances, as beautiful as the artwork is and as masterful as the line work is, I have no idea where this is taking place. I don't know if they've left this locale and gone to this locale. I don't know how they got here or any stuff like that. And so I need to read the words to figure that out. And that is a no-no. There is a, um, we had um, Brett Booth on the show a while back. Mm-hmm. And he talked about why he he had not seen Dread. And I told him to see Dread. And apparently everyone had told him to see Dread. <laughs> he gets back to me. I hate that movie. I said, why? Because everything is a medium shot. Every scene in the movie is a medium shot. And it's so boring looking. And I'm like, I could give you a debate with Brett about that for hours. But I'm like, you know what? You're not wrong. I love the movie, but you're not wrong. And I'm yeah. like, damn, you mentioned that. And I'm like, man, you just got to get on social media and talk to Brett about that. Because <laughs> that's a conversation that'll last forever. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was my immediate thought was remembering Brett just being mad at Dread. Yeah, those, those, those establishing shots and those faraway shots, you know, John Byrne is the master of that uh, of that uh, that that silhouette where he just draws a black line to the bottom of the page, a couple of establishing pieces of of, uh, of scenery, and then the little figures. And you know exactly where you are. You know exactly what the characters are doing. And I mean, I mean, I'm not saying only John Byrne can pull that off, but no one really does that, and you no one has for a long time. You know what Byrne does not get enough love for? For his perspective. John Byrne was one of the first artists that I ever heard of who used a drafting table and who used a um who who used that um that that rotating uh that rotating straight edge yeah. to, to build um to build um um perspective grids and then he would just draw on them. So his perspective is always impeccable. On the other hand, there are artists who are before his era and of his era, who you would think would also be masters of using perspective grids, but who do not use perspective grids. And one of the ones that that always comes to mind when I have this conversation is Masumani Shiro, who if you you attempt to figure out where the perspective is on a Masumani Shiro and line everything up, it never lines up because he does not use a perspective grid. He just understands where the horizon is, what the outermost, uh, 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 what the outermost perspective lines are, and and then he just draws in that space. And he is a reminder that comics don't have to be perfect; they just have to seem perfect. The um the one I was thinking of was the image from the, I can't remember the exact issue, but it was the the Christmas special. Okay, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Theme. And there's that image where you see her at the computer and you see up and up and up and up and you see the rafters and then you see the creature above. And I showed that to somebody who's who's an up-and-coming artist. And he, I said, do you want to see one of the best pieces of perspective that will actually almost give you a headache? And I showed him that page. And then I showed him the cover of, by Paul Smith with uh, an angel. Yeah. With and he's holy crap, it looks really. And I'm like, yeah, it really does. Both of them do. And they both use that same trick. But it's the difference between Paul Smith, who started off as an animator, and John Byrne, who is a traditional comic artist, just brought tools to the meme that you can see. And we could talk about Paul Smith for hours, so we're not going to 
do that here because ah, there'll be other times there'll be other times yeah. but um we need to talk about something because you have something coming up this saturday yes yeah uh, comic comic art san antonio of the uh, casa show let's talk about this because this is cool you don't see a lot of free conventions like this so we need to speak about this because this is awesome so the casa show I, I went there last year and it was in my opinion a perfect comic book convention. It was nothing but artists and vendors. Um, there was no, you know, there was no special guests outside of the medium. Nav and his crew who run who run Comic Art San Antonio, they they produce what it says in the box. They celebrate comic art and they celebrate local and area comic artists. And um and I came to the show um, last year. I had a wonderful time. Um, I, I wish that uh, <laughs> I, I, I wish that I had more time to walk around the convention space because when I realized how beautifully this was set up, I was like, I, I, I wish I, I wish I was like an attendee here <laughs> because there were so many interesting things. And now enough people have heard about what a great show this is. That I mean, like we have, a, a, there's, there's a lot of very cool people who are going to be there, and um, all I got to say is, um, please come by and see me. I'm going to have some comics, have a couple of prints, um, but I mean, you're going to find something that's interesting. I I spent, I mean, I did really well at that show, but I, I still also spent more money than I made <laughs> at that show because there was so many, there was so much great stuff there, and there it was just like the thing. That is, there's a couple of things that are special about that show, if I can, just real quick. The first is that that the 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 array of creators there go from people who have been working in comics for decades to people who just worked on this comic for a year or two, put their heart and soul into it, and now they're just doing the circuit while they have their job or whatever. And they're just they're just going to, from show to show and, and 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 showing their book, and it shows that comics is a medium that's accessible to everyone. But the other secret sauce of this show is the venue, Wonderland Mall, or the mall uh, the Mall of the, of America, I guess now. But that mall is a collectible mall. So upstairs, you have a whole almost like a flea market setup where there's a where there's booths. Where you can buy toys, you can buy collectible figures. There's an armory there downstairs. There's a couple of collectible shops, and the food there is like rodeo food. It's it, they have. There's a couple of places where you can get a bite to eat. The food is delicious. The prices are great. It is a perfect comic book convention, perfect. And I, I can't wait to be there on Saturday. Uh, I, I'm I'm going to make sure that I, I make sure to have time to walk the convention floor a little bit more. I mean. I'm looking at the guest list. I mean, the fact that you've got people like you, Jimmy Reyes, who I met a couple of years ago, who's just yep, like uh, Val Merrick, uh, Wes Hartman, like, and um, I I loved the series Sentinel, and I was so mad when they canceled that, and I never realized Sean was a local, and I'm like, okay, that's awesome because I love that series, and they brought it back for like five more issues, and I'm like, this is a tease. <laughs> yeah, there's. The guest list is fantastic, and um, the, the the cool thing is that is that again, Nav and the and and his crew at at, at Comic Con San Antonio, 
they really care about comic art and they, they create a great space to find great comic books, great prints, to talk to artists, to meet people. And, you know, this is, this is a, this is, this is as close to comics cultores as you were going to find. Wonderful. Like, like cultores is like the, 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 like this, uh, almost like this enveloping sense of culture where like you are just, you are in the purest version of like this art form. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's what this convention was last year. And it looks like he's, he's doubling down. And it's going to be fantastic. I remember there was a, it was actually back before Phoenix Comic Con, like I said before Phoenix Comic Con. And like the show that they did that got my attention because they would always have the same two guests. It's Todd Nauk and Brian Polito. And they're mm-hmm. awesome. But after a while, I was like, okay, I want to see more people. And then one time, they kind of stealth really, they kind of stealth put out a a new list of creators. And you had Josh Middleton. Uh, you had Billy Tan. You had um, Chibi Palmiotti, Amanda Connor. It is all these names. I'm like, holy shit. I have to go. I need to go to this. <laughs> I was even talking about this. And I went there. And then the second year, um, Rob Liefeld was there, a bunch of other people were there, and they had one celebrity, two celebrities. They had the actors who played Lois in the original Superman TV show, and they had Will Wheaton. And this is before Will had gotten really, really huge. Like he had his blog at that time, and that was and that was about it. Mm-hmm. And I come up to Will, and I'm dressed as Fry from Futurama. I got the orange hair, I got the jacket, I got everything. <laughs> and I come up to Will Wheaton, and before I could say a word, he just immediately said, Fry! <laughs> and he had the biggest grin on his face. And before I could say it, he said, yeah, dude, I've, I love this. I, I love the Star Trek episode. And this is before I pre-streaming, and he said, and I've got it on TiVo. I keep it on TiVo all the time, but I also have my DVD. So that way, whenever I want to watch it, I don't have to get my DVD, and I can be lazy, and I can get it on my TiVo, and I can watch it on there. And my wife makes fun of me for it. But I have it no matter what, and I can watch whatever. <laughs> I tried to do that with a couple episodes of Doctor Who, and uh, they have since been deleted, long deleted. Yeah. But that's okay because um, uh, uh, I I think that it's coming back to uh, what is it? Uh, it? Is the Warner Brothers platform that this it's coming to? It was on HBO, and I think it's being moved to Disney Plus. If I remember. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So, so. And Disney Plus is so. Uh, cool. Where it's like, hey. yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to catch, I'll have to catch up with it. But yeah, Will Wheaton, you know, okay. Since you brought up Will Wheaton, before we go, did they kill him off screen in Picard? Did they kill him off screen I, in Picard? I haven't watched Picard. I need to. <gasps> it's fantastic. It's it's um, it, it's 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 like comfort food. It's it's like a giant Star Trek flavored gallon of ice cream. I've heard it's like the ultimate fan fiction. It is. In yeah. fact, the ultimate fan fiction. That's a perfect. That's a perfect descriptor for it. But also, not in a bad way. Like yeah. there's some stuff that's clear. Like it's like fanficy stuff. But like, there's nothing that's like that's that's terrible about it. Yeah. It's it's just it's wonderful, simple Star Trek: The Next Generation from the Rooter to the Tutor. Love it. I do. I do check it out because. Um... But I hope that Will Wheaton shows up because he's a, he's the last guy. He's the last guy to show up, and I hope that he's—I hope he's in an episode. Same. Um, I gotta tell you, man, this was fun. I don't know about you. I'm I high- a- look, look. Like I said, I will be here. 
so so uh so you know always always hit me up there's uh, there's gonna be a lot of times when i'm gonna be like on a, on a crunch so i might not be able to set up a time but but uh but give me enough advance notice and we we can book something like a round table or like or just something like this this was fun so where can people find you man in this big wide so, screen so i am on facebook I'm uh, because I'm over 50. I'm on Facebook, uh, Christopher Allen, International Man of Mystery, right? International Man of Comics. Um, I'm also uh, on Instagram, Graphics 407. That's G R A F I X 407. And I'm on Twitter uh, under, uh, I think, Comic Book Kid uh, or Comic Book Kid 210. So eventually I have to merge all those platforms, but um, I, you'll excuse me. I'm very old and um, I don't know how to do that. Uh, so, um, so I'm just going to keep them the way they are and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to shout into the darkness. And you can find, um, circuit 42 on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. Um, due to the musk of it all, you can no longer find us on Twitter. Um, (laughs) but you can listen to us on Spotify and you can listen to us on iTunes. Um, and honestly, man, this is a great show. Thank you once again for coming on and thank you everybody for listening. And have a great night, everyone. Take care, guys.